Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. In recent years, there has been an alarming rise in the number of American children and youth assigned a mental health diagnosis. Current data from the Centers for Disease Control reveal a 41% increase in rates of ADHD diagnosis over the past decade and a 40-fold spike in bipolar disorder diagnoses. Similarly, diagnoses of autism spectrum disorder, once considered rare, have increased 78%. Dr. Enrico Oops, sorry, technical problem there. Dr. Enrico Noletti um, is a clinical psychologist specializing in child and adolescent therapy and assessment. He has witnessed firsthand the push to diagnose these disorders in youngsters. Drawing both on his own clinical experience and on cutting-edge research with his book, Back to Normal, he has written the definitive account of why our kids are being dramatically overdiagnosed and how parents and professionals can distinguish between true psychiatric disorders and normal childhood reactions to stressful life situations. So how do we differentiate between a child with, let's say, autism spectrum disorder or a child that's simply introverted, brainy, and single-minded? Well, tonight we're going to find out with my guest, Dr. Enrico Noletti. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be on the show, Marianne. Well, I read the book, and I loved the book. Mm -hmm. Um, The title of the book is Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder, and Autism Spectrum Disorders. Um, You know, I wanted to start the interview, actually, um, in the middle of the book. And in the middle of the book, um, one of the chapters is Be Straight With Us. Does ADHD, Asperger's, and other other mental illnesses truly exist? Because I really want the listeners to understand um, that you're not saying that, you know, these are made-up diagnoses. Is that correct? Of course, yeah. And and I take great pains in the book to really... um, in narrative ways, giving stories, story after story of what what is typical of a true uh, case and and what mimics it but isn't is something else. So I'm absolutely saying that these these common childhood disorders do indeed exist, but I would add that um, I think they're massively overdiagnosed. Um, yeah, that 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 would be my position. Yeah, you know, and, and in that chapter you talk about, um, and then throughout the book you have a lot of um, cases, um, you know, of children that you've seen. You, you've seen many, many children. And, you know, you talk about a case where a little girl came in and she was clearly ADHD. 
um, and was given mm-hmm. the right diagnosis. And then, you know, another mm-hmm. girl walked in and, you know, you knew immediately it wasn't. Um, and that's something that when I was reading this book, you know, I, I speak with a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists. And not everybody is a great diagnostician. <laughs> and I think that's something that you really, um, you know, have, have a talent for. Um, so, you know, what there, there, obviously um, there is a tremendous, there's an explosion of um, diagnoses to these children with all different types of disorders. So what do you mm-hmm. believe are the main reasons why, um, let's start with ADHD, autism, and bipolar disorder. Why are so many kids getting these labels? Well, I, I would say for a, a, a number of reasons. I mean, the, some obvious, some less obvious. You know, the obvious one, of course, would be the spectacular public relations success of the pharmaceutical industry and just selling the American public on the pervasiveness of mental health problems and the almost magical properties of medications to remedy them so that as a society it's made us a lot more easygoing about medicalizing children's behavior rather than stepping back and trying to understand it. So there's that going on. Um, you know, the, the, I would argue that the diagnostic habits of health and mental health professionals have actually changed in ways that, such that uh, there's a shrinkage of time in the doctor's office, the average length of a pediatric visit, 16 minutes right now, believe it or not. Right. And yes. psychiatrists almost joke with each other about, about the, 15, the classic 15-minute med check. So you've got a situation where a lot, of par- a lot of parents find themselves in this situation where they're, they're, there's precious little time to talk about their child and they have to speak in clinical shorthand, you know, and, 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 and given that as a society we're far more likely to do that because of the PR campaign of the of pharmaceutical company, parents freely talk about almost like symptom language, words like forgetful, distractible, impulsive, moody. The, you know, we, we speak in symptom shorthand, and so then that can create conditions that can railroad a child into getting a diagnosis. I mean, a couple of other things, and I, uh, there's, I, and I address this in my book, the education and training of the average health and mental health professional these days, or teacher for that matter, uh, has precious little background in child development, such that um, it's very... It, uh, professionals these days are more likely to see a struggling child as a disordered child or a, or a child behaving in a difficult manner as a disordered child because they really don't have a solid grasp of what is, what, what's normal in this day and age. So you've got that going on. You've got what's called diagnostic rebranding and upcoding, and these are just fancy words for how we've we, we are, uh, in order for insurance coverage to cover mental, mental health problems adequately, mental health professionals feel pressured to give a more severe diagnosis to get uh, more services. And so, for instance, when I was practicing starting out in the 80s, perfectly good diagnoses like oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder were enough to get the kind of uh, pay for services that you needed through insurance uh, companies, um, so your kids that were unruly, argumentative, moody, reactive, you could assign them a diagnosis like that that was not a particularly severe diagnosis, and then uh, uh, with managed care and the rationing of mental health services, 
that was no longer the case. So there was pressure on mental health professionals, and I would argue that's still the case, to come up with diagnoses like bipolar disorder and ADHD to, um, you know, so, so that kids will get the services they need. And then lastly, I'll just say that I think that the diagnostic labels are more loosely defined and stretched to include mild cases. And it's the mild cases, yeah. seeing these disorders as spectrum disorders, where we get, where it becomes extremely difficult to tease apart what is evidence of a mild case of a disorder versus a child who's just out of the norm in terms of the, you know, the rate at which they mature, their social and emotional development, their motor development, um, the, you know, this, that, and the next thing. You know, and it's, I, I want to go back to what you were saying before um, about the pharmaceutical companies because, you know, Dr. Um, Alan Francis has been on um, three times, and one of his biggest complaints is that um, America is the only country in the world where we allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise. Um, and, uh-huh. you know, and, and parents think they're, you know, the magic bullet. I mean, like Temple said when, you know, when she was on, there is no magic bullet. There you um, go. But, you know, what I do find is that most um, child psychiatrists, um, you know, that I speak to, um, you know, they would never give a diagnosis in a 15, 16-minute session. Um, and I think that's important. I think one of the problems is that a lot of pediatricians are taking on the there role you go. of diagnosing mm-hmm. and, and even worse, prescribing. Mm-hmm. I would I would both agree and disagree, Marianne. In terms, of, I think what, in my experience, what you see, psychiatrists may spend more time with the child, the family, but the discussions I would argue are still of a shorthand, cut to the chase, symptom checkoff type discussion, not a full elaborate discussion about how a child behaves at school versus at exactly. home in mm-hmm. front of their uncle, in front of their parents, in front of their teacher, you know, uh, what, what is a transitory problem, what is a long, stand, a, a long elaborate, uh, developmentally informed discussion about that child and that child's family life. So I would argue, I would stand my ground with, with that point. And, you know, I think also, um, you know, with this, um, you know, not otherwise specified, um, you know, I used to say that should have been my daughter's middle name um, mm-hmm. because... You know, when you have that tag put on, it's basically saying you really don't know. And, um, you know, wound up that my daughter had none um, of the diagnoses they thought she had, which is one of the biggest problems because you can really Mm -hmm. have a child that's struggling, a very young child, Mm -hmm. um, and you you need to wait um, and see what evolves and unravels, um, you know, which Mm -hmm. is one of the other problems is, you know, how do you feel about the um, diagnosis of, you know, very young children, four, five, six years old? Um, I, I think it's problematic. I think I, I'm torn because in the in the severe cases of things like autism spectrum disorder, ADHD bipolar disorder, in the severe cases, and frankly they're, they're more they're easily ide- identifiable. In the severe cases, earlier is better. The earlier is better philosophy, I think, is the appropriate one. Um, however, it's when we get into the mild cases once again that, it, that uh, the, the younger and younger age at which we assess children, uh, the greater likelihood that a struggling child will be considered a disordered one, and frankly, as I write about in my book, the greater chance that, that a boy will be assigned a, a diagnosis. Yeah, we're going to go into that um, next because that's really a very important message for parents to understand. Um, you know, I think I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, there are children um, that are clearly 
um, clearly have a mental illness. And for those mm-hmm. children, you know, like you said, early um, diagnosis and early treatment is, you know, a must. And, um, you know, one of the things that's so important for parents to understand is that, you know, the medications are not the, you know, magic pill that, um, mm-hmm. you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever therapy might work for the particular disorder, you know, it, it takes time. But mm-hmm. um, what bothers me is that um, oftentimes what's not taken into consideration when you have a child who's acting out at home, acting out at school, um, is their thinking style, their learning style. I mean, 70% mm-hmm. of school um, for younger, you know, in high school, 70% is auditory, 90% of college is mm-hmm. auditory. So mm-hmm. there are, is, you know, there are a ton of visual learners, visual thinkers mm-hmm. who are just lost and also sensory issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, well, it, how, how would, you know, how would you evaluate something like that? Well, I, I just to add to that, sometimes it can get even more absurd than that, Marianne. So, for instance, what I've noticed in my practice, and one of these days I, I want to write about it, the, I would say that probably tw- at least 25% of the cases of, a, of supposed ADHD that come my way, uh, when you closely examine it, it's a kid who's in a school system where they're getting uh, uh, Fs and zeros for assignments that have been done but not handed in, or the kid forgot to turn the page and answer the additional 10 questions that were on the back, or they were out sick for three days and they all of a sudden they get a, a, a string of Fs because they, you know, they, they didn't get a verifiable uh, uh, absence. So and the, and so all of a sudden you look at the kid's academic record and it's A A B B B A A A and then a string of Fs, and the parents and the teachers are all thinking, what is wrong with this child who, on a, on first sight, is an academically talented child who's getting a C minus in my class, and the, and the, and and rather than carefully examine the most common sense obvious reason. Uh, bizarrely, you know, everybody's saying, does this child have ADHD? So I would just add that sort of absurdity to, to, to your previous comment. Yeah. And there's also the problem of conformity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that especially with these standardized tests and larger classrooms that, um, you know, these kids that think out of the box, these kids that are a little bit different, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's difficult for them to conform. It's difficult for mm-hmm. them to sit in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's why sometimes outside influences, um, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. play a role for a parent um, to seek, um, you know, a, a diagnosis when maybe, you know, it, like you said, it's the setting. Yeah, I, yeah, and unfortunately we're too quick to medicalize children's behavior. See it as something to do with a disordered brain rather than a misfit between what a particular child might need educationally and what they're being provided with. I mean, I think that always has to be part of the equation. And it goes hand in hand even for the children we were speaking of before that have, you know, clear-cut, you know, profound autism. Um, there you or go. that have bipolar, um, you know, mm-hmm. God forbid schizophrenia. You know, all of these things, you know, they, they still have to go hand in hand with, un, you know, unraveling the other issues that could be causing a problem. There you go. So mm-hmm. it, it's got to be so hard from, from your end, um, you know, when you're seeing these kids. But I want to move on to what you touched upon before. Um, you write in your book that boys and um, traditional masculine behavior are being uh, pathologized and um, abnormalized in our culture. So, you know, in in the um, recent New Yorker, 
um, this was mentioned in there, and um, there was some doubt about, um, you know, where this information was coming from. So why don't you tell us what you meant by that? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're going to go into the science behind it. Yeah, and, and, you know, most of my book is driven first and foremost by my experiences over the past 25 years as a, as a child psychologist. I've worked... I've worked in Harlem, I've worked in South Central and here in L.A. I've worked with rich, poor, Hollywood mega stars, judges, professors, and everything in between for, for the past 25 years. And most of my insights are drawn first and foremost from my experience, but I've also w- looked at the research. And it's hard to kind of uh, 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 deny it. I said, you know, right now one in 54 boys uh, the latest uh, research out of the Center for Disease Control, one in 54 boys has been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. That's five times the rate of girls. ADHD is diagnosed at three times the rate in boys as girls. First and second grade boys are three times more likely to be medicated than girls. 75% of students labeled emotionally disturbed and referred for special education services are males. I think it's hard to argue against the, the, that kind of data set, but I can I could give you a few reasons why I think I think part of it is is that we we as a society and I hesitate to do this and it's a controversial point to make I think we're very hesitant to have gender discussions so much so that you know it, it may be that what is considered normal really applies to the average girl these days and not the average boy with respect to things like communication style, we, we forget that the average boy is fairly logical, analytical, detail-oriented, like conducting verbal interactions like their business transactions. They will drone on in a monotone voice about their favorite subject. They'll grandstand. They, they may be like brusque and honest to a fault, like saying things like, yuck, you know, your hairdo makes you look like a girl. And you... You you can you know you, you challenge them on it and they're they're just saying they're being honest and what's the problem instead of think, you know being insensitive and that that kind of you know they're, they're not less likely to engage in eye contact they're less likely to look up when their names called read faces for evidence that that maybe they're coming across in ways or off putting these are all aspects of traditional masculinity especially in young boys. And you can see how in mild cases of autism spectrum disorder, it's easy to confuse that, that for that to get confused. Um, boys believe, uh, you know, the research shows that b- boys do not develop associative play or affiliative play. In other words, seeking out kids their same age, you know, to play socially with. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't. Uh, it's not until about age four or five that they, they, they are equal with girls in that domain. The average boy, toddler boy, is, is happy to happy to play alone, manipulating toys in a rote fashion and get get pleasure out of that. I think we over overvalue pretend play. It's more apt to be true of girls, I think, uh, than boys. Uh, if boys are engaging in pretend play, it's usually of the aggressive nature, like rough and tumble play, playing war games, you know, uh, uh, playing cowboys and Indians, and that gets uh, it's t- taboo uh, in preschools and kindergartens for that to happen. So there, so when it, so it gets kind of uh, uh, 
uh, redirected in ways and disallowed so that, that it shuts off boys' main ways of playing, especially, you know, pretend playing. Um, you know, you have that going on. Uh, uh, and, and then finally, you know, it's often said that autism spectrum disorder children lack a theory of mind, meaning, you know, uh, having a kind of a, an awareness that other kids have thoughts and ideas that are different from their own or scanning their faces for evidence of where they're coming across, how they're coming across or what's motivating them to behave the, the way they do. But during the toddler years, studies have shown that the, the average girl is twice as effective as having at mind reading, if you will, than the average boy. And it's not until, you know, age five or older that the gap closes significantly. So, you know, we have to be careful assessing male toddlers in particular for possible mild autism for all these reasons. Right. And, you know, it, there's also, you know, from my understanding, very high percentage of um, girls that fall through the cracks that um, they're missed, the ADHD and the Asperger's. But, um, you know, there's also a, um, you know, biological reason why boys, um, you know, more likely are diagnosed and then are uh, correctly diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I interviewed, um, I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Valerie Hu, and um mm-hmm. You know, she wrote why autism strikes more boys than girls, and there's a, you know, there's a biological reason. There's a protein. Um, it's called RORA, R-O-R-A, and um, you know, people with autism have very low levels of this protein. It's produced by a gene, mm-hmm. and um, it affects testosterone um, in the mm-hmm. brain. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons, and one of the reasons why girls may be um, less likely to get it um, is because they have higher levels of estrogen that are protecting mm. them from this mm-hmm. particular, you know, subgroup. Um, you know, and one of my biggest pet peeves, um, one of the reasons I started this show, um, was because my daughter was misdiagnosed for seven years. And, um, you know, she had every label you could possibly imagine. And through all of this, I kept telling all the doctors, but I think she has an endocrine problem. I think there's an endocrine mm-hmm. problem. And they would say, oh, well, yeah, her testosterone level is that of a 18-year-old boy. But, you know, she's so young, nobody's going to treat it. I said, yeah, but she shouldn't have that. Um, mm-hmm. And long story short, I went to five endocrinologists and um the fifth one said, this is a quality of life issue. We're going to try, um, you know, to give her um, birth control pills to see if we can regulate this. And within a week, she was a completely different kid. Mm. Um, you, you know, know and you know, all, of those, all of those wrong diagnoses of mental illness, yeah. <laughs> you well, know, it was an endocrine problem. And, and sometimes, you know, it's interesting how casual we are and quick to assume that it's a mental health issue when oftentimes it's a medical issue that's gone undiagnosed. Yeah. Absolutely. And what really surprised me was that um, when I first started doing this, I just did a a little sample thing on my own where um, I had asked um, people that had um, anxiety disorders and agoraphobia at a very young age, um, how many of them wound up when they were older to be diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome or some type of Uh, disease. And mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many replies I got. Um, But when I asked the doctors how many of them send their um, girls and teen girls for an endocrine evaluation, not one. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that that's one of the things, too, is that there could be an organic basis. There you um, go. I, I have a child in my practice right now who, for the better part of a year, his psychiatrist was saying that he had an anxiety disorder, and I thought maybe it was ADHD and switched back and forth. And I actually was the one, and I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a, psychiatr- a psychologist. Uh, I was seeing strange things in my office that to me seemed very medical, and so I was the one that was screaming and yelling for him to get a brain scan, and lo and behold, he had a tumor in his temporal lobe that had to be removed. And, you know, that, uh, so, yes, yeah, you've got to think. We always have to think of the wide variety of causes for children's behavior. Absolutely, my, the same thing. When we finally got the brain scan, she also had the tumor. So you know, mm. years, you know, trying all these psychiatric medications that didn't help. Yep. Um, and we found the reason, but you know, we were lucky we found the reason. And then you know, they really children really do need to have a really thorough um, checkup before they yep. um, you jump to the conclusion. Um, you know, I want to bring on now Diane Kennedy. Diane Kennedy is the author of Bright Not Broken. She is the host of the show by the same name here on the network. Welcome, Diane. How are you? I'm great, Mary, and I'm enjoying the conversation so much I forgot you were calling me on. <laughs> I love you know, the conversation. I wanted you to um, help join in now on um, you know the topics we're going to be discussing because um, most people would agree um, actually, they would argue that early screening and early detection for autism spectrum disorders is essential. Um, but, Dr. Noletti, you feel that that could be a double-edged sword. So mm-hmm. why is that? Well, th- there are a variety of reasons. I know we're pressed for time here, but I'll, I'll zero in on one of them. W- one of them has to do with uh, uh, t- toddlerhood and the procedures that are typically used to uh, assess for autism and how the procedures themselves can turn a struggling child into kind of an autistic-like child. So, so um, uh, uh, Stanley Greenspan, who is a well-known autism mm-hmm. expert who passed away, I think it was last year, uh, did, did it, and he, he's, he's the one that devised the floor time approach, did a study of 200 of the top assessment sites across the country and discovered that only 10% of them will allow a child, a child to be with their mother present for 10 minutes or longer in the room. And the norm is more one of to fairly quickly separate that child from their parent, put them in a strange room with a stranger and, and have a fairly kind of sterile or clinical approach because it has to be a standardized assessment with that child for a child who's slow to warm, a child who's a late uh, uh, talker, and one in five toddlers these days develops language late, uh, uh, for a child who, who tantrums, and about you know, 50% of toddlers have difficulties with tantrums, for a child like that, uh, you know, add on top of that separation anxiety, and, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden a child just is an artifact of the assessment process and how it's structured can engage in coping behaviors that are autistic-like, going mute, hand-flapping, crawling under tables, tantruming, not responding to their name being called, not engaging in eye contact, engaging in a rote activity, stacking uh, 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 blocks, for instance, as a means to self-soothe. So I would would put that on, on listeners' radar. 
what is the quality of the assessment that's been done? Is that, is that professional taking adequate time to put your children at, child at ease, have you in the room present, really put that child in a comfort zone, in their own com- inside their own comfort zone, and do the evaluation from there, not a discomfort zone, if you will. So I, I'll, I'll just make that point. Can I jump in there? I'm so glad you brought that point up. And, you know, um, we've had some wonderful discussions on our program with, um, and Marianne knows, Dr. Um, Judith Gould and Lorna Wing. And they and I'm so glad you brought up the, the point of assessment and looking at this so briefly in terms of autism because that is one of their largest points, that it's not just the tools we use, but that they even said that the gold standard is in the clinical judgment mm-hmm. of the person assessing it in that unless you understand what autism is at its core there rather you go. than following too limiting in, in the tools sometimes because unfortunately we have imperfect tools. There's mm-hmm. just no easy way to get around that and sometimes it is in the, the psychology and understanding of the clinician and their experience. Well, and and along those lines, Diane, I would agree wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, I think there's a whole generation of psychologists that are being trained to only endorse evidence-based treatments and to undervalue their own uh, uh, subjectivity in the room. And frankly, Uh I think that, in my experience, that's the best tool. If a child is laughing when I, I, if I play with them and they're laughing when I laugh, you know, smiling when I smile, engaging in eye contact when I'm actively trying to engage them. I feel right away in my own subjectivity as a person that this child is not autistic. And unfortunately, I, would say, I have a reputation locally for being the person that, that families come to when there's questions about diagnosis. And I could say easily 40 to 50% of the time, I know within the first two minutes of interacting with a child through just playing with them informally, uh, engaging them in a a warm, human way, I I know within two minutes whether they have it or not. Uh Well, you know, and the confusion comes in too, and I know that's something that we talked about a lot when we had our interview before, and that is when a child is gifted and sometimes... Sometimes these kids that are autistic tend, and we talk about this, that the gift can mask the disability and vice versa. And mm-hmm. when um, my own son, and I, I was looking at one of your um, your scenarios in the book, and you used the child named Sam, and that's my son's name. <laughs> and, uh-huh. um, you know, it, it was harder to tease out the autism because from a very early age, he learned to copy behavior. He learned mm. what was expected. And it wasn't unless you were really trained to know, like you're saying, really trained mm-hmm. to understand, okay, is he just copying this behavior or is he genuinely understanding the give and take of social interaction? And well, that's that's one of the sorry. questions I was going to bring up because you use the words um, run-of-the-mill narcissistic tendencies in the book. And at first I was like, wow. But, you know, um, it's, it's really it, – I want you to, to explain that because you write um, – 
mental health professionals, teachers, and parents have trouble distinguishing between true cases of this disorder and the run-of-the-mill narcissistic tendencies in children. So what do you mm-hmm. mean by narcissistic tendencies? That, that's, a, that's a complicated issue that we could spend three hours on, Marianne, but, <laughs> but just generally speaking, painting broad brushstrokes, when we talk about normal childhood narcissism, we're really talking about things like a child having overconfident expectations, that they, they have big ideas about what they can accomplish, that you know, they overreach, they, they think they expect to know things without actually learning them, that just thinking it makes it so, magical thinking. These are aspects of normal childhood narcissism that can mask as sort of ADHD symptoms where a kid who, who doesn't want to prepare, practice, plan, who thinks that they should just be able to do well on tests just because, just because of who they are, especially in our praise-friendly uh, uh, p- parenting environment these days where children oftentimes get easy praise uh, just for showing up. It can reinforce <laughs> soft narcissism. Like, you know, and, and, and oftentimes a child failing to follow through on an arduous task, which is an ADHD-type symptom, or to be forgetful or to give up when, you know, uh, it become distractible when they can't immediately master a, ta- master a task. Oftentimes that it can be ADHD, but it can also just be that you've got a child who's maybe a, li- a little on the other side of the curve in terms of, like, their narcissism, their overconfident expectations or their sense of entitlement that that things should just go their way and the teacher should make it easy for them to learn just because and how, how come it involves so much organization and planning and following through it ought not to. So, I mean, that, that's my quick and dirty answer there. So, so just to be clear, though, but that, there's a huge differentiate, um, differentiation between that and, say, grandiose with a child who may have bipolar, um, who has you oh, know, yeah. mania, doesn't sleep, you know, age inappropriately, thinks they could, you know, build a plane or something. The, the, yeah, not, now we're talking about a, a delusion. So, you know, and I think you raise a good point. I mean, I think it's really important to differentiate between kind of normal adolescent grandiosity and true delusional grandiosity of the mania type you know children grandiosity can be a very healthy thing during adolescence children need to be able to kind of maybe believe that they're capable of more than they you know they are push themselves a little bit ahead have have ideal goals and aspirations where if they just put in the 10,000 hours and they get the right kind of mentoring and they're in the right kind of situation and they happen to have true talents in a given area, it's the kids who've got a little bit of grandiosity, you know, uh, chest-pumping grandiosity who tend to do well. So Mm -hmm. we have to be able to differentiate between that and true bipolar-type grandiosity, which is more delusional. And... Can I jump in there with one thing I wanted to say, and I'm glad you, you mentioned adolescence, because so many of these things, whether we're talking about issues or what you were talking about earlier, we always have to bear in mind things and issues can look different developmentally. It depends mm-hmm. on the developmental stage. And so some of the characteristics that I hear you describing about these kids could certainly apply to gifted kids 
before mm-hmm. they really have a chance to know who they are because mm-hmm. they learn quickly and they're so far ahead. And sometimes you're right that um, mm-hmm. Dr. Silverman we've had on from the Gifted Development Center talks about be careful the gift can turn on itself. I would say mm-hmm. some of the characteristics you're describing can happen with a young child who's just accustomed to knowing more than everybody in the room, including the teacher. And that's uh-huh. a not nice thing if they're continued on that path without somebody helping them to, to reflect on their behavior. Am I right? I, I, I agree, Diane, but I also think, and maybe this is because I grew up in Scotland and Great Britain where as a kid, you know, the, the, true, the popular kids were the kids who were doing well in school and in sports, not just in sports. I would argue, too, that we need to do a better job as a, as a society about having humility. And I, and I would say this yeah. to teachers, having some humility that you, you may have a child in your class who actually does know more than you or who's destined to know a lot more than you and that you have to cherish that gift and really, uh, and, I'm, and frankly, I'm that way in my practice. When I come across a kid who's truly mentally gifted, frankly, I'm in awe. And I know that this, this child is in a stratosphere of their own and that, and that they, ought to get, they ought to get some felt recognition of that. It's not just the child who has to make the accommodations all the time to, to be, you know, uh, fit in, to kind of adapt, to be kinder, more polite. I think sometimes the adults need to make the accommodations and say, ooh, we, we, have, a, we have a kid on our hands who is truly gifted and needs to be, we need to draw a line around that kid and usher that kid through childhood in a different way and perhaps give them a different Absolutely. kind of education that puts them in a league of, you know, with, with the other kids that, that ought to be in that league. So that, that would well, be my one of the biggest, point of yeah. view. That, that's one of the biggest crises of, of this decade is that we are not using differentiated education for these children. Mm-hmm. We are not using um, schools for the arts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're not marveling different. And it's a shame because these are the brilliant, you know, minds of the future. There you go. Um, you know, we, when Dr. Thomas Armstrong was on, he wrote um, Multiple Intelligences. Mm. And yeah. we were talking about the niches Our for all of these kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. neurodiversity, and he just wrote neurodiversity in the classroom, and the importance of strength-based strategies mm-hmm. so that they can reach their potential. Um, so, you know, as we close the interview, I just want to bring up two more things. My first question is, where the heck were all these kids when we were growing up? Because I don't remember any of this. I yeah. really don't. I mean, you know, there were kids that were a little bit different. There were kids that were a little bit shy. But, I mean, now it just seems like every Every household has a child with some type of a label. Yeah, and frankly, now that my book's out there, you know, I'm getting uh, I'm getting umpteen calls from parents asking that same question. It's like it seems like everybody has a story to tell about a, a child that's in their family or someone they know who's being ascribed a diagnosis, and they're not sure why or they're not sure if the medication they're on is helping or they should get different kinds of services. and So it, there is a lot of confusion out there, I think, in the general public about, you know, what, what is normal for, in terms of childhood behavior? What, you know, what is normal now? What's expectable? Uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think that's a good question you're asking. 
You know, I wanted to end off then, you know, Diane, you can jump in on this too, but there's one thing that I think you and I have a little bit difference of opinion on, and that's stigma. Um, and I wanted to, um, you know, discuss stigma as we finish this interview. Um, you know, for me, I always um, felt that um, by not, by having a fear of having your child diagnosed, um, that you were really jeopardizing. Um, you know, God forbid, um, you know, true depression, suicide, that, you know, the stigma shouldn't prevent you from getting your child help or putting your child on medication. But stigma also can really create a lot of problems for the child as well. So why don't you both tell me your opinions on this and, um, you know, how parents should best deal with it. Maybe I could weigh in there because I... I think there's a lot of information that parents need that they don't have around stigma. Now, I should say that I, for kids who truly do have these disorders, we need to do a much better job of us as a society of just reducing that stigma, giving the children the services they need, and so on and so forth. However, even though as a society I would say we've been much more casual about ascribing these diagnoses, the research shows that in, in their private minds, the average American is, it still views children with mental disorders in stigmatizing ways. A study by Dr. Pesco Solido out of uh, Indiana University showed that mm -hmm. about a third of Americans believe that an ADHD child is a would-be dangerous child. And so we may publicly be casual about these diagnoses, but privately the average American thinks that you beware of a child with a diagnosis. And there are things like, for instance, in some states that you can't adopt a child if you've got a mental disorder. A lot of uh, well-regarded professions are out, out of reach if you've got a mental disorder, P like working for police departments, they scrutinize records, the military, top security jobs. It's in some states across the country, you can't get a pilot's license or a trucker's license if you have a history of certain mental illnesses. Um, uh, health, health, well, with Obamacare, this will be less true, but certainly with uh, um, health and, uh, uh, life insurance, disability insurance, you're put in a high-risk uh, category oftentimes or denied it. And I'll leave you with this thought. In 2010, in the state of Kansas, uh, it, you could still be denied your voting rights if you were considered mentally ill. So wow. there's still a huge stigma associated with these and, and disadvantages associated with these disorders. So we have to, parents have to be careful with records, who they tell about the diagnosis. Even if your child has one, a true case, I would say you always have to be conservative about you know, who you tell and for what purposes and making sure that records are kind of carefully handled. Well, that's an interesting point. Go ahead, Diane. I, no, I would jump in, too, and it was something I was going to say earlier, and it does apply here, is the, the vignette that you use in your book under the rush to diagnose, and you talk about when the teachers were given um, a little scenario of a child, the child Sam, and how when they were just posed with the question, what would you say these behaviors are, and they were quick to jump to ADHD, mm -hmm. which stigmatizes these behaviors as being willful. It's one of the issues we have with the diagnosis mm -hmm. of ADHD yeah. is it, 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 sometimes it's not helpful. It puts on a brand. It brands them as bad behavior. And mm -hmm. at, 
at the same time, I love it that you pointed out when the teachers were given the option of, or does this possibly um, look like gifted and talented? And, the, and that's a double-edged sword in itself as well. I mean, it's much better to at least recognize the whole child and their strengths that this could be giftedness. But at the same time, and what, it's what we've learned, and it's something that is so frustrating, is that even in the side of gifted and talented, in that community, in the educational world, there is an, a huge stigma of what a child should look like if they're gifted and talented. And mm -hmm. this little, I love this little vignette in your book because you go on to say that these teachers' response was, well, if Sam was, I'm, I'm going to read this if I can real quick. Well, Sam, Sam we only have two minutes. We only have two minutes. Oh, okay. That's okay. If he was gifted and talented, his work would look neater. And uh, talented students don't there have enough or, or abuse authority. Um, that, that's a stigma for gifted. And that's yeah. Well, we're going to have to end on that note, but uh, Dr. Um, Noletti, I really want to thank you for joining us. The book is terrific. Um, you know, I think people have to have an open mind. Um, nobody is saying that children do not have mental illness. Um, I think what you're saying, and what Diane and I both um, agree, is that um, there are a lot of children that are just being misdiagnosed, and, and, and parents need to be careful. And this book is really very informative. It's, it's a, it's a um, you know, I really recommend people go out and get it back to normal, why ordinary childhood behavior is mistaken for ADHD, bipolar disorder, and autism spectrum disorders by Dr. Enrico Noletti. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Marianne. And you, Diane. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being my sidekick tonight, Diane. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Sunday, so we're off we have, the air now? Uh -huh. um, well, we're going to be off in one minute. Um, Sunday oh, okay. we have an, an amazing uh, show. I have the two lead authors of the um, groundbreaking study. Um, the breakthrough study reveals the biological basis for sensory processing disorders in kids. Uh -huh. If you notice, I said disorders as a plural. Um, the two leads... Um, Dr. Um, Mukherjee is with us, and Dr. Um, Olin is with us. And th uh, this is pre-taped, and I am telling you, this is unbelievable, what the findings oh. are. So that's Sunday night. You can join us, 9 p.m. Eastern. And um, as we end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on The Coffee Clatch. Go to www.thecoffeeclatch.com and check out Diane and Rebecca's book, Bright Not Broken, uh, co-authored with uh, Dr. Temple Grandin. Have a great night, everyone. Good night. Good night.